Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 113, Threadbare Bells. 1758 had been a pivotal year in the Americas. When the campaigning season of 1757 drew to a close, things looked grim. The attempted British assault on Quebec from the east had failed as Loudon had failed to take Louisbourg and had instead been pushed back. There had been the Fort William Henry Massacre in northern New York, and the frontier along the west continued to disintegrate as the French and Indians launched raids along Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and the Carolinas. What a difference a year can make. Sure, there had been the disaster at Fort Carillon, but Louisbourg had been captured on Cape Breton Island, Fort Frontenac had been captured on Lake Ontario, and Fort Duquesne, which had caused this whole war in the first place, had been taken and destroyed. In its place, Pittsburgh was already rising. The French were on the back foot, which was crucial in Pitt's plan to focus on France's colonial holdings. Horace Walpole quipped that the bells were threadbare, worn out after ringing in so many victories. However, North America was just one theatre of the Seven Years' War, and today it's time once more to zoom out and look at the big picture. We'll start with Europe. When we left Europe in 1757, things were not looking good for the British and Prussians. King Frederick's invasion of Bohemia had not gone well, and he'd been forced back from Prague. The Swedes had invaded Pomerania in the north, the Russians were looming in the east, although the Russians had supply problems. The Russian army was large, but was a very long way from its base in Moscow, and while it had reached Koenigsberg, the modern Kaliningrad, they had failed to take it and instead pulled back. And then there was the fiasco of the French attack on Hanover, which led to the humiliating surrender by Cumberland and Hanover dropping out of the war. All in all, 1757 had not been a good year. King George II repudiated the convention of Kloster Zevon, which was the treaty that saw Hanover surrender, and command of the Hanoverian army was given to Prince Ferdinand of Brunswick, who restored it to fighting strength with remarkable speed, and started making attacks against the French on the Rhine, forcing them out of Emden by March 1758. A victory in June against the Comte de Clermont at Crefield, not far from Dusseldorf, saw the French fall back to Cologne. Meanwhile, Pitt started his strategy of launching coastal raids against France, and he eventually sent a force of 9,000 men to the continent. This was a drastic reversal of policy. In opposition, Pitt had bitterly opposed even the sending of financial support to help Hanover, but now he was funding Prussia and had a force of 9,000 Brits on the mainland, which cost the crown millions of pounds a year. The issue with this 
even worse than the expense, was that it didn't really do anything. France was now less likely to invade Britain, but that wasn't exactly a serious problem before. It had drastically increased the cost of the war for Britain, but didn't change the balance of power on the continent. Progress had been made by Frederick during the winter of 1757-58. He managed to reclaim most of Pomerania and forced back the Swedes. He had defeated the French at the Battle of Rosbach and the Austrians at Luthen. He followed these up by moving back into Silesia to reclaim land from the Austrians and pressed further south into Moravia, what is present-day eastern Czechia, but was forced to pull back after the Austrians dented his supply chains at the Battle of Domstald. Then there came news from the east. The Russians were attacking. In January 1758, they captured most of East Prussia, which Frederick largely let happen, focused as he was on the Austrians. It was not until August that Frederick finally met the Russians, by which point they had reached the Oder. They fought on August 25th at the Battle of Zorndorf, which is today near the German-Polish border. The result was claimed as a Prussian victory as it stopped the Russians advancing, but can more realistically be described as a stalemate, or Pyrrhic victory at best. The Prussian army was 36,000 strong, and nearly 40% of them were killed or wounded in the battle. The Russians had heavy losses too, around 16,000, but they were not forced back. They were forced to stop but they were not forced back. That the Russians could lose so many men and not be defeated left a great impression on Frederick. The Prussians did not have time to rest, because they immediately heard that a larger Austrian army was descending on Dresden. Frederick left half his force to watch the Russians while he raced back to Saxony to face Field Marshal von Don at the Battle of Hochkrich on October 14th, where he was defeated and lost a quarter of his army. He retreated to Dresden and was then besieged. It was technically Frederick's only defeat in 1758, but it hadn't been a good year. At the start of the war, the Prussians had been the best trained fighting force in Europe, but since then over 100,000 Prussians had died. The men could be replaced at great cost, but the lost experience was even worse. These were the circumstances that you have to consider Pitt sending his army to Prussia in. He needed to do something to help Prussia, and so was prepared to completely reverse policy. This intellectual flexibility has been praised by historians, but it's important to note that it was made possible because Pitt didn't really have a formal opposition. The only person who could bring him down was Newcastle, and Newcastle had grown to respect and trust Pitt. This led to opposition from the backbenches, but this led to the impression that Pitt was above party, which only enhanced his reputation further. Then there was the bigger picture. The war might not be going well for Prussia, but Fort Duquesne, Fort Frontenac, and Louisbourg had all been captured. 
Louisbourg in particular increased Pitt's value in the eyes of King George II, although this in turn led to deteriorating relations with the Leicester House faction. Now, we need to turn our attention to a new theatre. We've covered a lot of the world in our history of the United States. Medieval Sweden was a particularly favourite digression of mine, but we've covered everything from prehistoric Alaska to the Mughal Empire. There are, though, a few areas we haven't quite managed to look at yet. So now, for the first time, let's get into the story of West Africa. West Africa is one of the great centres of civilization, and one that, unfortunately, is neglected in popular consciousness. Centred on the great rivers of the Niger and the Senegal, a number of civilizations rose and fell over the centuries, most notably the gold-producing empires. There was Wagadu, founded in the first centuries after Christ, known more commonly by the title of its rulers, Ghana, anglicised as Ghana. In the 13th century, Wagadu's supremacy was replaced by the Empire of Mali, known for its capital of Timbuktu and its famous emperor, Mansa Musa, which I would expect every civilization player to know. The area was well known to Europeans. Timbuktu gained mythical status as a city made of gold, one that is so deeply embedded in the West's conscience that it still holds influence today. I spent some time in the Maghreb earlier this year and can confirm the goosebumps from mere signs to Timbuktu. In addition to gold, which gave the region the name of the Gold Coast, ivory was important. European countries competed for trade in the area and Portugal established a settlement on the island of Gori in 1444, which is now part of the Senegalese capital of Dakar, as a key link in the Atlantic slave trade. This settlement was captured by the Dutch in the 1500s, and then the French became interested in the area. They founded Saint-Louis, near the mouth of the Senegal River, in 1657, and then took Gori off the Dutch in 1677. The French were firmly entrenched in the region, and had a series of outposts along the coast by the mid-18th century. This brings us up to the Seven Years' War. Due to the unique political situation in Westminster, Pitt had almost complete control of Parliament. Policy could hinge on the thoughts of one person. All you had to do was persuade Pitt and you had official policy. Enter Thomas Cumming, a Quaker merchant from New York who went to Pitt with information about these outposts, specifically how weakly defended they were. He talked about the potential riches of the area, gold dust, ivory, the sap of acacia trees, and of course, slaves. Cumming wanted to guide an expedition to West Africa with himself at the head, to make dealings with the local rulers and throughout the French. In return, he'd receive a trading monopoly in Senegal. Things started off going rather well, as Cumming set sail for Africa in 1758 with six ships and several hundred marines. The force arrived at Fort Louis on the Senegal River 
in April, and the fort immediately surrendered. Cumming returned to England with plenty of treasure, encouraging Pitt to send a second expedition to take the other French positions, Gori, and a base for slaving on the river Gambia. It was all captured by the end of the year. This caused significant problems in the French economic system, as the plantations in the Caribbean suddenly lost their supply of slaves. French silk manufacturers lost their supply of acacia sap, and French privateers lost their base on the African coast. This, and the news of the capture of Louisbourg, helped cement in Pitt's mind the certainty that focusing on the colonies was the correct strategy. In September, he decided to replace Abercrombie as commander-in-chief with Geoffrey Amherst, and he began preparations for an assault on the Caribbean island of Martinique. Martinique was not only valuable, but it was large enough as a diplomatic chip that it could be exchanged for Minorca. Newcastle, who was paying for the war through funding from the London bankers, was well aware that current expenditure could not go on forever, and that a potential credit crisis was on the way. When it came time for peace, Martinique would be valuable. So 6,000 troops set sail in November 1758. In Europe, Pitt planned to continue to financially support Prussia, and to continue to provide troops. The navy would continue to act around France, as well as putting pressure on France's neutral trade partners, the Dutch and Denmark. They would continue to stake a claim in West Africa, as well as launch the ambitious assault against the Martinique in the West Indies. The militia would be expanded in the Home Isles. However, these were secondary concerns. The main goal of 1759 would be to use the advanced basis established in 1758 to launch a conquest of Canada. That will be what we turn our attentions to next time. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 